the Past, a podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center, hosted by me, Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services, and Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honour the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. As museum professionals, our jobs are many-fold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We often find ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work. Our podcast begins with the idea that a simple search for information can lead you in some strange and wonderful directions. Like Alice's adventures in Wonderland, historical research has a tendency to lead you down a winding rabbit hole that takes you off your original path towards some new and amazing historical places. Each of us has just one hour to research a topic. 60 minutes. That's it. We research separately and then come back together to discuss where one hour in the past has taken us. Welcome to Series 4. We're so excited to continue cooking along with our new ingredients by shaking, stirring, and folding in a slightly new format and some special guests. We hope you've enjoyed your time in the historical kitchen with us so far. Just like a good roast in the slow cooker, the topics we research usually need much more than just one hour to research. So this year we're following a different recipe and focusing the entire series on one topic, food. We'll talk about spices, mealtimes, cookbooks, military rations, preserving food, and restaurants. We're also excited to welcome some special guest museum professionals from our neighbor museums here in Niagara to help us carry the ounces, teaspoons, and tablespoons, cups, pounds, and even bushels of research we'll be cooking with on the podcast this year. If you're joining us for the first time on One Hour in the Past, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head back in the archives to catch other episodes of historical adventures on topics like hats, prime ministers, soda water, maps, Thanksgiving, daylight saving times, telephone, uh, stuffed animals, printing, and even the FLQ October crisis. On today's episode of One Hour in the Past, we are excited to welcome Christine Girardi from the Niagara Falls Museums, who will join us to talk about restaurants and taverns. Welcome, Christine. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the Niagara Falls Museums? Okay. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, thanks for joining us. It's very exciting <laughs> to have you. Uh, so I'm assistant curator at the Niagara Falls History Museum. Um, we have a few different sites. So we are the Niagara Falls History Museum, which is kind of like our flagship museum located on Ferry Street near Main Street. Um, and that site is open year round. And then we have two other sites, the Battleground Hotel Museum um, and the Willoughby Historical Museum, which are only open in the summertime. 
And unfortunately, in our COVID world, uh, Battleground Hotel Museum will not open this year. Um, but basically, I uh, run all of the public and educational programming for the museum. I have a really great time doing it. Um, help out with exhibits, collections, all kinds of things. We wear all sorts of hats at the Niagara Falls History Museum. So it's a great place to work, and uh, I really enjoy doing it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Christine, today. We're very happy to have our neighbor museums on the podcast with us. Um, so as our listeners know, we start every podcast discussion here on One Hour in the Past with a definition of what we're talking about. And I looked up the definition of restaurants, even though our topic is restaurants slash taverns. And it sounds like from a little bit of pre-chat, sounds like most of our research ended on the tavern side, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, restaurants, it's a noun. And restaurant is a place where people pay to sit and eat meals that are cooked and served on the premises. Restaurants comes, the word restaurants uh, comes from the early 19th century, from the French, from restaurer, <laughs> which is a <laughs> terrible pronunciation, but uh, I'm really famously not good. This is the part of French that I'm not good at, is the a-U-R-E-R -E sounds. It's like very, uh, there's not a lot of hard consonants in there for me to grab onto, so I have a hard time with pronouncing those words. Anyway, R-E-S-T-A-U-R-E-R. -E -E so that means to provide food for, literally restore to a former state. So restaurants, I guess the idea is to restore you to a point of fullness <laughs> physically fullness <laughs> that sounds awesome <laughs> so uh yeah which is kind of cool and i think i think we should also acknowledge uh here at the beginning of our discussion that we're recording this because this podcast is actually going out in september that we're recording this in may during the third wave uh during the third official stay-at-home order at a time when restaurants and pubs and taverns, whatever you want to call them, are not open for indoor dining, in-person dining, that kind of thing. So we're having a little bit of fun. We may get a little bit of nostalgia going on about the pre-COVID pre times. Maybe we'll get a little bit hopeful about the times we can, the times in the future that we can go and visit uh, these super important places in our community once again. We also start with a little bit of a research summary before we get into our discussions. So I'm happy to say that I get to go first <laughs> because my, my research is discombobulated and very short. So I started at Shipman's Pub, Paul Shipman's Pub at the corner of St. Paul and Ontario Street. And I ended up at McLaren's Pub from How I Met Your Mother, the TV show. <laughs> And I can't tell you how I got there yet because it's all part of a game. Oh. I'm so excited oh, about a game. Adrian, you love the games. I, I love the games, but I cannot give it away. So I will pass it on to Christine okay. to tell us about her research summary. All right. I started in ancient Rome at Pompeii. Wow. And I ended at the Hotel Savoy in New York City, New York in 1906. Oh my gosh. So, that's that's incredible. That's a big jump. <laughs> that's a huge jump. I, that's amazing. And it doesn't really flow, but we get there. <laughs> discombobulated is good. I think discombobulated makes the podcast work. I think that's our word of the day. <laughs> awesome. So excited. All right, Kathleen, you're next. 
Right. Okay. So I started with Canada's National Food, which I thought was awesome. maybe a, I Googled history of restaurants in Canada. And the first kind of thing that picked my fancy was Canada's National Food. And I ended up with, and this is just a sneak peek, so you're going to have to wait. I ended up with spitting promiscuously. <laughs> what? Is that like speaking moistly? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> just loved that term though spitting promiscuously yes it brings all sorts of images to mind uh and it's very descriptive text so (laughs) i think everyone will definitely hang around to the end of the episode (laughs) to hear what the heck you're talking about that's awesome hi everyone it's adrian I just want to pause the podcast here for a quick second to promote the upcoming lineup of lectures for the fall series of our virtual museum lecture series. We're so excited to kick off the autumn series this year with a talk by Kathleen Powell titled Adventures in Housekeeping on September 21st. As the 20th century dawned and with new excitement and a look forward to the next century, St. Catharines was in a period of growth and prosperity. Did that rosy picture translate into the home and domestic life? This lecture will look behind the closed doors and catch a glimpse of the domestic sphere and how it was changing with the new century. On October 5th, we'll welcome special guest and local railroad historian Andy Panko to take us on a virtual train ride as we explore the rails, sidings, and rolling stock of the Welland Ship Canal Construction Railway, one of the busiest railways in Canada at the time of the canal's construction. On October 19th, I'll present... Canada's Game in the Garden City, which will explore historical narratives and living memory about hockey in St. Catharines and what makes hockey so special and significant to so many in our community. On November 2nd, special guest, local historian, and chair of the city's Heritage Advisory Committee, Brian Nari, will be here to discuss the early court system starting in the 1780s and various court cases and records from early St. Catharines in his talk, Woe be to the malefactors, early St. Catharines court records. On November 16th, Sarah will use housing, suburban development, and sprawl as a lens to consider some of the major socioeconomic issues that face the people of St. Catharines in the 20th century. By paying close attention to housing trends and issues in the city over time, we can gain vital insight into how big societal shifts impacted our community, from immigration to the Great Depression to the post-war era boom, and more. And on November 31st, Kathleen will be back to explore when the world was plunged into war in 1914 and how everything changed. Life would never be the same for those who fought and for those who were left behind. This lecture is a personal look at the First World War through the eyes and the voices of those who lived through this life-changing moment. And that's our autumn lecture series for 2021. We hope you'll join us this fall. As always, you can catch the lectures on our YouTube page and check our website for all the information you need, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. Okay, so let's get started. Uh, I get to go first. Again, I think I put myself like this knowing that I wouldn't have a lot to say. (laughs) So I started at Paul Shipman's Pub, and locals will know that uh, Paul Shipman was, uh, and his pub was pretty central to the very, very early history of St. Catharines. Shipman's Pub was central 
sort of the central hub of our little town, uh, little little town, little quiet village that was uh, the growing, <laughs> that was growing at the corner of St. Paul Street and Ontario Streets just after the War of 1812. The community was known for a little while, at least, as the Twelve. Early, the early records are the Twelve, and that's for Twelve Mile Creek. Uh, but then it became known, popularly known as Shipman's Corners, because of course the corner had Shipman's <laughs> Pub. Uh, Shipman's Pub was a, a public house, the customs house, the stagecoach shop, the post office, and offices as well. We don't really have a picture of what it looked like. It's probably a, a house of some kind. We don't really know how big it was, but you know, customs, stagecoach, and post office could all be done from the bar. <laughs> probably, <laughs> or from one particular place. So it may have been small, it may have been big. A very important event took place at Shipman's Pub, probably one of the f one of the most important events in St. Catharines and Niagara history took place at Shipman's Pub and then in 1824, uh, along with George Kiefer, Thomas Merritt, George Adams, William Chisholm, Joseph Smith, John DeCue, and William Hamilton Merritt, Paul Shipman signed the charter to incorporate the new Welland Canal Company. Pretty cool. Has nothing to do with food, which I realize now. <laughs> which I realize now it's like this podcast is supposed to be about food. Well, I missed the mark. <laughs> I don't talk about food at all. But anyway, I got really wrapped up in this this history of pubs. So bear with me, I guess, until we get to other people to talk about the food part. <laughs> Anyway, that reminded me uh, of the idea that pubs or taverns uh, served as sort of the catch-all establishments in a lot of early communities. And I looked at the brief history of the Mansion House as well. And it's around the corner on William Street, uh, downtown St. Catharines. It's still there. Apparently, it was built by Merritt himself. The first sort of um, rendition of the, the house was built by Merritt himself. But I actually haven't heard that before, so unless someone knows for sure i have i need to do some deeper research on his hand in the first mansion house that's pretty interesting i hadn't heard that before either yeah i mean i know he was there he used it as an office but whether he built and owned it i don't know but it was a public house uh by the 1820s uh so i guess directly in competition by with paul shipman uh, the history of the Mansion House also claims that Merritt used the building as his office, as I mentioned, for his early work on the canal. The building itself was rebuilt and saved from fire in 1868, and then it was and it was at that point that it was renamed Mansion House. And apparently, it's the longest running licensed establishment <laughs> in all of Canada. That's pretty cool. I went there so as I, a university student. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Although it's a lot different in my university days and probably in yours too, yes. Kathy. It was a, it's a lot different from the 1820s. Anyway, that got me thinking about the names of famous pubs because who knows where Mansion House came from. Maybe just because it's like a big house. But if you translate Maison, wouldn't that be House House? <laughs> so I was thinking about names well, and where they came from and like English... Um, English pubs are really like the center of what we understand, especially in, in Canadian British pubs. Our Canadian pubs are very centered on an English feel. So I wanted to look at some of the pretty wild sounding names. Um, and so that's where I got kind of stuck and I didn't move beyond that. And I have a bit of a game to play. So first, <laughs> pubs have very characteristic names and they're usually mixed up with 
name and brand. Many pubs were signed with pictures because literacy wasn't universal, so you needed a picture rather than a name. And so some names are derived from pictures. Signs were legislated to hang outside any establishment selling beer so that they could be easily identified as early as 1393. That was mostly so that the inspectors, the beer inspectors, could find the places where beer was being sold. (laughs) Many names were derived from local battles or events, important people, religious symbols, uh, all sorts of things, and they could all be mixed up together. They could also all be mixed up together with a coat of arms that might resemble, you know, the local lord who owned the land of uh, that the pub was on. A popular and traditional name for British pubs is the Marquis of Granby, and I guess that's because John Manners, the Marquis of Granby, uh, was a general in the 18th century, and he showed a great concern for the welfare of his men. And on their retirement, I guess I'm guessing officers on the retirement of some of his officers, he sometimes provided funds for many of them to establish their own taverns, um, which were then named for him. And I think that's really interesting little sidebar that you, in in sort of the the popular British shows, people sort of go off to open a tavern (laughs) as sort of like a retirement project. So it's kind of interesting that like running a bar would be a retirement project where today we definitely wouldn't think of running a restaurant or running a bar as a retirement project because it's it's so much work famously so much work all pubs granted licenses in the year 1780 were called the royal george to honor the 20th anniversary of george iii's coronation so every single one you had no choice just in that just in that year so if you were given a license to open a pub in 1780 you were called the royal george wow good to know Hey, it's pretty great to be king sometimes, I think. (laughs) Um, So there are some quite famous, both fictional and non-fictional taverns, pubs out there that I thought we could play a game. His games are really hard, Christine, just so you know. I know, I listened to one, and I'm I'm going to be terrible, I know it. (laughs) This one may be easy, it may be hard, there may be some really good ones, and maybe some really easy ones. Okay. So um, I'm going to give you the name of a pub, and you have to tell me if it's a fictional pub or a non-fictional pub. If it's a fictional pub, it would be great if you could identify the story that it comes from. So these are quite, some of these are quite famous. You will know them. So some of them are from television, so it's okay. (laughs) All right. So we're going to start with a super hard one. Oh, good. That's not how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to. Clearly, you haven't played games with me before. Security. (laughs) Exactly. I really, I really make you feel bad right away. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So the first name is Tan Hill Inn. Is it real or is it fictional? I'm gonna say it's fiction. It's my guess. What do you say? What do you say, Christine? I'm, I'm going to go the other way so that it's like a 50-50. Right. It's real. It is real. One po- I'm actually going to keep score this game. I'm going to keep score this game. Uh, so that's one point for Christine. Yeah. Uh, the Tan Hill Inn is in Yorkshire. It's the highest elevation pub in the UK. Wow. The Prancing Pony. Oh, I know this one. I know this that fiction. <laughs> That's fiction as well. Fiction. Okay. <laughs> Kathy, for the point, where does it come from? From the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. The, the Lord of the yeah. Rings. Very good. And Very they good. call it okay. a pint. <laughs> <laughs> like, meet us at the, the Prancing Pony Inn. Yeah. yeah. Oh, where is the Prancing Pony? Does anyone know? 
It's been so long since I've read the books. It's called Bree. Bree, yes. All right. The town of Bree. Yes. Just a, I think it's technically east of the Shire. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you thought we'd be talking about food. Here we are talking about the Lord of the Rings. How about the Red Lion? I'm going to say fictional, but I'm not going to be able to tell you what it's from. I guess I'll go the opposite of Christine. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's worked well for me before. And Kathy gets the yeah. point. The Red Lion. So the Red Lion is a real pub, and it's so close to the Palace of Westminster, which houses British Parliament, that it has its own division bell so that MPs can go back to the chamber and vote. <laughs> So that little bell that they ring when there's a vote, it rings in the pub so that people can boot it back to <laughs> to the house to vote. You know, so that, I thought that was kind of cool. You know that they're making really informed decisions that they're <laughs> going immediately from the pub to, to, <laughs> to make big decisions about the government. How about Moe's Tavern? Oh, oh fictional! <laughs> Christine, very good. The Simpsons! <laughs> from Yay. The Simpsons. Excellent, excellent. Okay. <laughs> The Garrison. I'm going to say that one's real. Yeah. There is, uh, I believe, isn't the Garrison House yeah. a pub in Niagara Lake? It, unfortunately, I'm not talking about that one. <laughs> well, come on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm talking about the pub on the show Peaky Blinders. Oh. So nobody gets the point on that one. Clearly, I do not watch enough TV. That's all right. <laughs> the Admiral Benbow Inn. I'm going to say it's real because we haven't had a real one in a little while. <laughs> and that just sounds too ridiculous to be made up. So, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Christine, it is made oh, up. Oh, man. <laughs> it sounds uh, familiar. I feel like I should yes. know this. You sh I think everyone will probably say, ah, um, the Admiral Benbow Inn is the inn in Treasure Island. Oh, yes, oh. of course. Where, yes. um, you know, I only know the Muppet Treasure Island version, and it's the same. It's the same name, I, <laughs> but that's where Billy Bones gets the black spot, and then they the Muppets, essentially the powder keg inside the tavern. Why this? I never thought about this until now. Why the Muppet Treasure Island tavern has a powder keg in it, but basically they explode, and Gonzo and Rizzo fly out. Of <laughs> anyway, great. I only know the. Uh, Treasure Planet version of this, oh. but I believe it's also called the Benbow in in Treasure nice. Planet, the movie, the cartoon movie. <laughs> okay, Rover's Return. I think that that is fiction. And where is it from, Kathy? It's from an English show, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I can't think of the name of it. From Coronation Street. I was just oh, yes. gonna say, say Coronation Street. <laughs> I had no idea, but <laughs> figured. Okay, here's an easy one. Cheers. Oh, oh yeah. that's fictional. <laughs> no, not yet. Yeah, fictional. Sorry. Yes, very good. And where is it from? From from Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Very good. <laughs> okay, the nutshell. That doesn't sound familiar to me at all. No, me neither. That's because it's a real pub in a place called Bury St. Edmunds, Suffolk, England. <laughs> I picked it mainly because of where it's that name. I wanted to say that name. Uh, but The Nutshell is actually claims to be one of the smallest pubs in the UK, which is cute because it's called The Nutshell. Mm, that is sweet. Okay, here's three. So I'll give you a hint that it is, these are fictional pubs. 
but you have to give me the television show. Okay. There's three pubs. Duke's, McGinty's, and one that only appears in one episode, The Fox and the Whistle. Hey, isn't that from Frasier? That's what I was going to say. You got it! (laughs) Very good! Yes, yes, yeah. (laughs) Yes, very, very good. So uh, it's Dukes until Dukes is knocked down to build a condo. That's an episode, which is kind of fun. And, like, Martin goes through this whole, like, existential crisis because his bar is disappearing. And then uh, it's replaced by McGinty's. He finds a new place. And then... One of my favorite episodes is where Fraser goes to Daphne's English pub. It's like a English pub in Seattle. It's called The Fox and the Whistle. And he like sort of like becomes British because he's like has no other friends and then pisses Daphne off enough to like for her to get out of my pub. This is my pub. This is where I come to hang out with my friends and be British. Um, but it's such a good episode about like pub life. So that that's a really uh, interesting one to check out. How about Ye Old Cheshire Cheese? This feels fictional to me, but it's probably real. <laughs> Actually, Kathy, you're right. It's a crossover. It's oh. real, but it appears in fiction. It appears in The Dynamiter by Robert Louis Stevenson, and it appears in The Million Dollar Bond Robbery by Agatha Christie. And a cool nugget is that Charles Dickens is has is known to have visited there. Oh. So if there's pubs in any of his books, perhaps that's an inspiration for some of them. The Green Dragon. Well, that is uh, from The Hobbit, right? Wow, Kathy! Boom! Great. <laughs> I think that I've was seen that excellent. those movies like a thousand times. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, very good. The Three Broomsticks. Oh, I got that one. Harry Potter. I know that one, too. I do know that one. Come on. <laughs> and I'll name you another, The Hogshead. Ooh, oh my gosh. Bonus Christine point. for bonus a bonus point. point. <laughs> bonus point, for sure. The Hogshead was actually recommended to me by the interweb, and I decided to pick the other one. So that's great. Wow, bonus point for The Hogshead. Nice. But, like, I think the Three Broomsticks name is, like, such a clever name for a pub in a magical place. Because it, like, fits very much in the idea of, like, a British pub name. But it also fits into the naming of, like, a pub in a magical town. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I love that their pubs have, like, the signs hanging outside them in the movies. Just like uh, uh, you would see in a a kind of medieval... uh, town in the UK. I think both in Harry Potter and in Lord of the Rings, it goes towards this making the environment feel and the world feel really real yeah. and also like finished. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty clear that pubs played a, an important role in those cultures for that when the fantasy land came along that a pub was still central to the story or part of the story anyway. Okay, last one. McLaren's. Oh, well that's... you. You said that at the beginning. That's, I gave, yeah, that you gave that away. So I feel like no that's one a point a to point. me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> McLaren's is the the pub from How I Met Your Mother. If you're a fan of the show, you know they're basically in the pub 150 percent of the time <laughs> in the show. Again, another uh, fictional pub that's central to some storytelling. So I found it really interesting that pubs are so central to so many narratives that we know, but also if we really think about what our life was like pre-COVID that pubs are so central to our communities 
and uh, they're probably, you know, other than religious institutions or schools or workplaces, pubs are really a central gathering spot for a lot of people, whether you go there with your family or if you're, you know, meet up with your book club at the pub or something <laughs> like that. And so taking the, the pandemic into account, it was kind of tragic that we can't gather at them right now, but it reminded me, because, you know, we've all been sort of hiding at home. It reminded me that, like, of course, the businesses are suffering themselves, but what about the relationships and the communities that used these places uh, as gathering spots are also suffering now, too? So I personally underestimated how important these places are in our community, and I'm really looking forward to the time where we can go back to a pub. Mm. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Thanks for playing my game. <laughs> I'm pretty much, pretty much now, one hour in the past is... A game with Adrian. <laughs> but what about the score? You kept score. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh, the score. Okay. <laughs> so it comes out to six for Christine and five oh, for Kathy. Oh, that but bonus because, point. <laughs> you got the it's because of that bonus right point. <laughs> it's that bonus point. I mean, Kathy, if you can name another pub from fiction, <laughs> bonus point, you're tied. But you're essentially tied. It's just Christine got that bonus point. That's fine. <laughs> Yay, Christine. All that right. Thanks for very much for uh, bearing with me through the conversation about the Muppets. And so now we're going <laughs> to... We're going to have Christine right. tell us about her research. Some real historical research now. <laughs> um, okay, so I started off with a book called The Restaurant, a 2,000-year-old history of dining by William Sitwell. And before I could even crack the cover of it, I got stuck on a tangent because um, there's a little comment at the top, like a little quote, someone saying how great this book is. And it's um, from a retired three Michelin star chef. And so I thought, oh, I've always wanted to know about the Michelin star system <laughs> and where it came from and, and, um, and, and what exactly that means. Because I, e I didn't even know how many Michelin stars there were. Like, could you get five? Can you get 10? I don't know. So um, the Michelin star uh, began by Andre and Edouard Michelin in an effort to drum up more business. They began the Michelin Tire Company in France um, in 1889. And that's where this comes from. It's yeah. just seriously a, like, a, like a roadmap to get people on the road to drive their cars. And like in the original little red guide, it had all kinds of things of like maps, gas stations. It was really much more focused on like, how to change a tire and giving like practical information like that and then there were also hotels and food and that kind of thing that's and pretty then, cool i know and it's like because <laughs> i've always been like michelin star isn't there a tire company also called michelin <laughs> and like you think of like tires as just being so utilitarian and necessary and then the michelin star is so like hoity-toity and fancy and like restaurants that i could never afford or so it's very very funny <laughs> that it's still run by the michelin tire company it's, wow. it's crazy um anyway so cool. originally it was a free guide in like the 1920s they decided to start charging for it and abandon the whole idea of paid advertising to sort of um, support the guide and then the idea of the star began in 1926 and it started with just like a single star so the really great places got a single star 
And then 10 years later in 1936, they went to the three star category. Um, and that's what we still use today. And there's a very specific criteria. And I thought, oh, the criteria for a Michelin star, that must be really complicated and, <laughs> and in depth and have to talk about like fancy ingredients or whatever. But no, <laughs> to get one star verbatim, this is what you need. High quality cooking worth a stop. For two stars, it's excellent cooking worth a detour. <laughs> and three is exceptional cuisine uh, worth a special journey. So that's wow. <laughs> like that's that's it. <laughs> is it so that goes that? With that? Yeah, I guess so. As far as I could tell, and I mean, I spent like that's cool. I don't know five minutes researching that as little time as possible <laughs> because I had a whole book to to get through. Um, mm. But yeah, so that's kind of the origins of the Michelin star, which is okay. So. <laughs> Now my, my first little tangent is done and I actually cracked the cover of the book <laughs> and I decided to start with the first chapter, which is on the Romans. And um, the whole chapter is based on Pompeii, which is such an excellent example of um, looking at the history of the Romans. So the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 CE left a, like a perfect example of Roman life, right? And so it was like an airtight blanket of ash and lava, which turned into pumice and blah, 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 blah. So now we can excavate <laughs> down and get a great look at a 2000 year old dining scene, basically. So first we have to look at the city of Pompeii, which is shaded by Mount Vesuvius, which ultimately ended in their doom, but whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great spot because like you're shaded by the mountain, and you're also cooled by the sea. It's a beautiful tourist destination. It's a very popular seaport or stopping point for traders. So it's, it's bustling. And it is described by Cambridge Classics professor Dame Mary Beard as a cross between Las Vegas and Brighton. <laughs> so there you go. That's, that's Pompeii in a nutshell. That's and weird. That's very odd. A very odd cross gambling. cross section because <laughs> neither one of those would be considered high end. Well, maybe Las Vegas now, but yeah. it never wouldn't really be considered high end uh, entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> Fish and chips yeah. and gambling. Yeah. Like is that is that the well? There were a lot of brothels in, in Pompeii. Okay, <laughs> so different kind of fun. See, all I know, all I know about Pompeii is what you've said, which is essentially blah blah blah. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just kidding. Anyway, so uh, there's like a one kilometer long main street in Pompeii where you find hotels, bars, restaurants, lots of brothels, which I think is cool. fairly common in uh, Roman towns, and okay. um, in all, it's likely about they think it's about 160 properties were identified as bars or restaurants, um, wow. which is a lot. And yeah. the, the author speculates kind of that the large number is due to the fact that the inhabitants didn't have the means to prepare food in their homes. Kind of like modern day Manhattan, where so many apartments, you know, you can't even really boil a kettle of water, <laughs> let alone... They're the size of my office, Yeah, really. exactly. Let alone make yeah. an entire meal. So the inhabitants were really dependent upon eating out most of the time. So we got two fun little names, right? So you can have a restaurant attached to a hotel, so a place with accommodation, and that is called a hospitium. And then a proper restaurant 
is known as a papina. This <laughs> is such a cute word. It's <laughs> very cute. Um, and he looks um, more in depth at one of the places, which is known as the Inn of Primus on the main drag of Via del Abondanza. There's a great pronunciation <laughs> for you. And it's right at the heart of Pompeii. It was excavated in 1853 and again in 1857. And so when you, when you go inside, you have an L-shaped bar where drinks would have been served. Um, and on the one side of the L-shape, there are circular holes cut into the top of the bar where it suggests that there could have been like a little small grill there where food would have been kept hot, like soups or stews or things like that. And then there's a large hearth, which could have been used as another grill or as an oven. And then there's a back... How do we know this much detail about... I guess because Pompeii's frozen yeah, in time, but like I can't even tell you what Paul Shipman's pub looked like. <laughs> I don't even know what the house looked like. There's no image of it. There's no description of it. But we can we can go back a billion years and not a billion. But, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's crazy. Yeah, That's great. Because it happened so fast, right? The eruption of Mount right. Vesuvius was instantaneous and so many people died immediately from the pyroclastic flow which is essentially like the the chemical heat wave that comes off of oh my God. I, I i i know a lot about Pompeii. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's really cool i saw the exhibit at the rom years ago That's when awesome. it came in which is nice. so cool um but also heartbreaking sorry to interrupt anyway, i just no, thought it was so, neat yeah, like we know lots about something from thousands of years ago yeah because they just it, it's completely frozen in time and the people didn't have time to move or, or 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 really go too far um so they just sort of died exactly where they were standing when vesuvius erupted or some of them you know went into kind of storerooms or whatever trying to trying to escape the heat or what have you so it's really a frozen moment in time and such an amazing way to look at um, Roman history and, and Roman life. Um, but anyway, so there's a back door and it leads to a very ornate room, which would have been kind of like a private dining room. So you've got nice. the bar, the private dining room, very nice sort of um, setup. And we see the other great thing about Pompeii is there's a lot of like frescoes and paintings and graffiti that is completely preserved as well. And so there's lots of surviving paintings on walls of customers sitting around on stools at a bar and like wait staff, you know, kind of holding these flagons and food on shelves behind them. And like the people sitting at the bar are coming from all walks of life, like a guy with a cloak on and that suggests he's a traveler and whatnot. So just kind of a really cool glimpse into what it would have been like just shuffling up to a bar 2,000 years ago in Pompeii before you died a horrible death. And one cool thing that came out of a graffiti piece was wine was usually served diluted with water in ancient Rome. And clearly some people did this more than others because there's a graffiti left on uh, a tavern entrance, near a tavern entrance, and it reads, Curses on you, landlord. You sell water and drink unmixed wine yourself. <laughs> Which I think is great. And is likely the most... Burn. Yeah, I know, burn. <laughs> but it's likely the most tame Roman graffiti I've ever read. Because... Yeah. Most Roman graffiti is really obscene. <laughs> and that was definitely the most tame um, example he gave in this chapter. Um, the other, the last thing I'll leave with from the Roman chapter is um, historian Andrew Wallace Hadrill from Cambridge analyzed 700, 700 bags of human waste 
that were preserved from Pompeii. And this kind of gave us a good look into the average person's diet. So sifting through this, it revealed that they had a diet of chicken, fish, nuts, and eggs. Um, <laughs> if so if listeners, you could see the faces of Adrian and I <laughs> while Christine is talking about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But at least, like, it doesn't smell anymore. I thought we were talking about food. We are, we are. <laughs> no, I'm, just I'm just kidding. The okay. other end of the spectrum. The other end. Of the spectrum. <laughs> okay, so oh um, I wanted to read one more chapter or tried to get through another chapter in this book before my hour was up, and I decided to fast forward many thousands of years and read a chapter on the invention of the sushi conveyor belts. Oh, I've seen those <laughs> on the internet. They're the best. Adrian, you have to Google this. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, okay, so um, our story begins with, and I... I oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love that we have a story. This is exciting. <laughs> um, I do apologize for any pronunciations here. So we our story begins with Yoshiaki Shiriyashi, who opened his first sushi restaurant in the 1950s in Osaka, Japan. And before we, and then we'll pause from him and go into a brief history of sushi. So sushi began as a way of preserving fish in Southeast Asia in the seventh century, and it was always pickled and fermented. Um, it's not until the 19th century that sushi becomes raw and prepared in stalls in towns and cities. And it's not until the mid 20th century that refrigeration allows for the storing of fresh fish and make it much more viable and widespread. Um, and raw sushi epitomizes the Japanese philosophy of minimal intervention perfectly because you're just allowing the natural tastes of the seafood to pervade, which is kind of cool. So let's go back to Shiryashi and his idea of the sushi conveyor belt was born out of a lack of space and a lack of shortage of customers. So his, his, little, his little restaurant was way too small and way too popular. And he wanted to be able to serve more people more efficiently and um, couldn't expand the size of his building. That wasn't an option. Sorry, I'm just I'm looking at a YouTube video of a sushi <laughs> conveyor belt. While you're, I'm listening to you, but I'm just watching this. They are, they are really incredible. mesmerizing. I'm yes, sorry. It's all good. Um, and then he also couldn't hire more staff to, to make more sushi and to also serve the sushi because there wasn't enough room to really walk between the tables as it was. So um, in 1953, he toured the Uashi Brewery used conveyor belts to move bottled beer around ah. the floor of the factory. And he thought, aha, I could do this too. Um, so it, 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 took a, it took a little while and he had to convince the firm who created the conveyor belts for the brewery to then develop something very different for him, much more slower moving and um, mm. had to get around very tight corners and was a little bit more elegant than utilitarian, right? And so in 58, he finally opens up his newly named shop, Genruku Sushi, which featured conveyor belts that traveled around the restaurant from, so it went from the kitchen all the way around and then back into the kitchen again. And the conveyor belts moved at a perfectly timed eight centimeters 
her second, <laughs> which uh, Shiryashi felt was the perfect amount of time for people to be like, hmm, do I want that? Yes, I want that. Or no, I don't want that without feeling too pressured or frantic to like grab it off the conveyor belt before it zooms away. And you might be wondering, well, how did, how did they know what to charge people? If sushi is just like parading around everywhere, they use different colored plates and different patterns on plates to determine prices. So you oh, would just- Oh, that's so smart. Yeah, you would just bring your dirty plates to cash out or someone would come to you and look at all the dirty plates you had and that determined exactly how much you were charged. So more expensive sushi was on one color and blah, 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 which is just ingenious and so simple, right? That is so cool. I love it. It's so great. But they have made such a, like a science out of this conveyor belt sushi thing in, where is this, in Japan probably, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And it it still exists to this day. It is huge. So now it's known as, (laughs) it's known as Kaiten sushi, which translate to turnover or rotary sushi. Um, And this guy who created it, he literally doubled his profits because he, the turnover rate became much faster. He was able to serve so many more people. Um, and he also, because he didn't have to pay for as many staff, he didn't have to pay for wait staff essentially, he could charge less for his sushi. Um, and Also like you're moving a ton of product. Yeah. Let's talk about product movement in front of hungry people. Yeah. I would be broke if I went there because I would just keep yeah, taking yes. food. Like you said earlier, like how do you decide what you want? I don't need to decide what I want. I'm taking I'll all just of take it. Everything. Every time new food <laughs> arrives, I'll just keep. Taking and like it. the cho- the most choice spot would be right by the beginning of the conveyor belt, right? You just oh, steal yeah. all the oh, good yeah. stuff, mm-hmm. right? Everything that you mm-hmm. love, and just anyway. Um, the idea of like he could charge less because he wasn't paying for wait staff was also a sort of social leveler. It meant that a wider variety of clientele could come and enjoy sushi because Mm. previously to this, sushi was really for wealthy patrons or middle-class patrons because sushi restaurants were very small establishments that could only serve like 10 people at a time and it was very labor intensive and slow so only so many people could enjoy it whereas this it's like the fast food of sushi everyone come on in you can have you can have a dynamite roll which is my personal favorite (laughs) 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 which is probably like very like a western sushi and doesn't even exist in japan but who knows um Anyway, he was inspired by McDonald's. He opened 240 branches. Um, He tried to patent it, but didn't really work. And nowadays, you can find a Kaiten Sushi restaurant in literally every neighborhood in Japan. Like, there's thousands of them. So the chapter then goes on to explore how Kaiten Sushi then left Japan and went into England and New York and is all over the world now. But I stopped reading there. Because I Before only had, you, oh, sorry, yes. Any, yes. I just want to say that I saw a video on YouTube the other day that was uh, someone who put their GoPro on the conveyor belt of one of these restaurants. And as it went around, it caught all the people at all the tables going around. And it was so interesting just what was happening as far as the socialization of people at each one of these tables around the restaurant. That's cool. <laughs> I spend too much time on YouTube. Um, um, Adrian is currently on YouTube while I'm speaking right I'm now. I'm currently <laughs> looking at this face. video. Oh the glow gosh. in your eyes. This just is like... crazy. Oh my uh, gosh. It's so slow moving. There's a post-COVID goal for you to go to a Kaiten Sushi restaurant. Anyway, so I'm 
pretty much at the end of my research time. I think I had like eight minutes left and I was like, no, I'm going to stop with the Kaiten sushi now. I think I've got enough and do one of my favorite things that I love to do when I'm researching. So when I'm doing things for the museum, whether it's like researching World War One or like the royal visit to Niagara, I'm always looking at our collection for menus because there's just, Ooh. there's something about menus that makes me so happy. I love to see exactly what people were eating. I want to know how much they were paying for it. And then I always play a little game with myself of like picking what I would eat <laughs> if I was like, you know, in the rainbow room with Queen Elizabeth and eating what they were eating. <laughs> Whatever. It's, it's just, it's one of my favorite pieces of, of social history. It's great. So I found this great database through the Culinary, Culinary Institute of America. They have 4,000 historical menus from 1850s to the 1960s, and they're all digitized, so easy to click on. The oldest one they have happens to be from the Clifton Hotel in um, Niagara Falls, Ontario from 1855. I elected not to look at it because I (laughs) focus on Niagara Falls all the time, and I wanted to go somewhere else. Um, So I ended up at the Hotel Savoy in New York, New York. Um, And the menu is dated to November 11th, 1906, and it's their luncheon menu. So it's not even their fancy dinner dinner menu, it's their luncheon. And for those of you who don't know, the Hotel Savoy had three different incarnations. Um, This was its first, it was on Fifth Avenue overlooking Central Park. So very hoity-toity, very fancy. Um, And this is what I chose. So it's it's quite a detailed (laughs) menu and there's subsections, right? So basically I chose something from every, every single section and no one would do this. Like this is way too much food. Um, but this is the game I like to play. Um, and then I add up how much I would have spent <laughs> and maybe I could have eaten it all. Cause like I'm currently 35 weeks pregnant and just hungry all the time. <laughs> so this is an insane amount of food, I must say, but it, it sounds very good. Okay. I could probably, I could probably, we'll see if I, we'll <laughs> see what I think do. about how much food okay, it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'll say is I also like to choose things that I don't know what they are. Like they're they're random names that I don't really recognize. And then afterwards I Google what they are and be like, oh, gross, or ooh, that sounds lovely. Okay, so under the soup heading, I chose beef tea on tasse, which means beef tea in a cup. So basically beef consomme, I would imagine. And that was 35 cents. Under hors d'oeuvres, I chose two things because I'm excessive. Preserved figs for 40 <laughs> cents and oofs a la russe which Russian eggs, right? And essentially those are deviled eggs, which I love. So that's love. a great deal for 50 cents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm, so I have got some figs and I've got some deviled eggs. Why not? Delicious. For my fish course, I'm going to have fried scallops for 50 cents. Nice. Ah, so good. My entree is filet mignon rossini. Oh which I didn't know what, I know what filet mignon is, but I don't know what does it mean to be Rossini? How does that prepared? And it's topped with duck foie gras. And this cost $1.25, my friends. <laughs> Keep in mind, this is 1906. <laughs> and then next heading is roast and boiled. And there's a subsection of game. So you could get more traditional things like uh, chickens and capons and things like that. Um, But I decided to be a little bit more wild and go for the game section. They had six different types of duck, and I love duck. What? Yeah, so good. Um, But I decided to go for something I've never tried before, grouse. I've never had grouse. And it's served with currant jelly for $2.50. 
Okay, for my veg, I'm having potato souffle for 40 cents and German asparagus tips for 80 cents. My cold entree is lobster, because why not for $1.25? My salad is alligator <laughs> pear for a dollar. And for those of you that don't know, and I didn't know, I had to Google it, alligator pear is an avocado. What? I know, avocado salad. Oh, I'm calling them that from now on. <laughs> We're finally to dessert, and I decided to get cabinet pudding for 30 cents, which is a Victorian recipe. And it's essentially, it's kind of like a trifle. So like it could be sponge cake or cookies that are layered with dried fruits and custard and soaked in alcohol. Yes, please. I looked up a couple of modern recipes for it. And it generally is like amaretto pound cake based with like little dried or glacé cherries. That so, sounds great. That sounds delicious. And then fresh fruits. I went to the subsection uh, to preserves because I didn't really feel like a, like a piece of sliced pineapple. That just felt a little too pedestrian. So I went for something <laughs> I had no idea what it was. And it's called Bar Le Duc, which when I Googled it, that's Lorraine jelly, which is white or red currant jelly. Yum. That sounds great. And then for my coffee and tea course, I went for chocolate for 30 cents. Um, and they distinguish on the menu between chocolate and cocoa. So I'm very hopeful that this is like literally a little cup of melted chocolate. Right. I think so. I hope so. Um, okay. So my entire meal costs $9.55. Oh That's oh, a lot. American. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and with inflation today, it would be two hundred and eighty three dollars and thirty thirty seven cents American and when you convert that to Canadian it with today's dollar three hundred and forty one dollars and seventy cents Canadian nice. impressive. <laughs> very good and that's where my research Holy ended and, I, and then I had to go have a snack because I was very hungry thank you so much Christine for sharing your research that was really really cool all right, Kathleen, let's hear from you. Okay, so I, like Christine, started on a tangent. Um, I Googled uh, history of food in Can or history of restaurants in Canada, and that actually took me to a website that talked about Canada's national food, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, I found it interesting because it was there were foods on there that apparently were invented or created in Canada that I didn't know about. So uh, it had the things that you would expect to be on there, like tourtière, pemmican was on there, the uh, smoked meat sandwiches at Schwartz's oh. Deli in... Uh, oh, <laughs> Where is this? It's in Montreal. Polluted. Actually, that's the second appearance of Schwartz's on the podcast because... It was on our Spices podcast right. because they invented uh, Montreal uh, steak spice. Or, uh, yeah, Montreal steak yeah. spice yeah. is what it's called. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. But it also included other foods that you would maybe, well, you might know. Red Fife wheat was invented in Canada, uh, which I hadn't really thought about this from a food eating perspective. You know, you know what it is and you know it grows here, but uh, apparently it really changed the way that bread tasted in Canada. So uh, it had this very distinct taste compared to potentially other countries that were using different wheat, which I think is interesting if you were Canadian at that time or if you were coming from another country and then to have wheat uh, grown here and to have the flour taste different. I just feel like bread mm. just tastes like, you know, you're, we're just yeah. used to bread tasting like bread. Anyway, oh, uh, pierogies. <laughs> pierogies not from Canada, but pierogies uh, definitely were uh, brought here with immigrants. 
Um, pablum, which is baby food. Pablum was invented in Canada, which I didn't know, which I thought was really uh, revolutionized the way you feed children. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saved um, a lot of lives too, right? Yes, like yes. Uh, my younger son, Owen's favorite food in the entire world, Kraft Dinner, was invented oh, in yes. Canada. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to Catch admit, up. I actually like Kraft Dinner. I shouldn't probably admit that publicly, but I do like it. Um, Everybody likes craft dinner. If they say they don't, they're lying. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, How does everybody eat their craft dinner? I think we should stop and talk about that. <laughs> I, as a kid, I used to beg for hot dog, chopped oh, up I hot do dogs like to go yes, into the craft dinner. So I like that's uh, how I try to do it. I do like craft dinner with salsa in it. I Very used to eat way. it with salsa too that's when cool. I was. Yeah. So I'm I'm unfortunately lactose intolerant in my adulthood. Uh-huh. I wasn't when I was a kid, so I haven't had it in a really long time. But I do crave it all the time. So my my craft dinner nowadays comes from Rise Above, the vegan okay. restaurant uh, downtown, yes. which yeah. has amazing mac and cheese, vegan cool. mac and cheese. So that's nice. how I enjoy it. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we <laughs> talked about Canadian boar cake, which was a cake created, uh, eaten very commonly in the Second World War. Uh, it's an eggless cake, uh, uses kind of, you know, the ingredients in your pantry, not too expensive. Uh, margarine was on this list. And I don't know if you're aware that margarine oh, was yes. heavily legislated in Canada until 2008. Yes. I actually remember as a kid, you couldn't have, you couldn't find margarine that was yellow like butter. It was like a white color. Um, and I know my mom used to tell me that they used to get margarine and it come with like a, a color pack. And it was in like this plastic thing that you had to like manipulate it until the color was all... Uh, kind of ingrained <laughs> in the uh, the margarine and then you would fr- you know put it in the fridge to get it cold again but wow. so that your margarine kind of looked like butter what? and then margarine used to be a like a darker kind of color like almost like the color of craft dinner um but now it's like the color of butter essentially but they didn't want that because the dairy lobby was so strong yeah. in canada uh, it still is but uh anyway margarine was on that list hawking's cheesies which if you look it up, you'll recognize the package. It's very distinctive. This is a Canadian company, very specific kind of cheesies. Um, Fish sticks are a Canadian thing, uh, which kind of came about because of the cod fishery and having kind of frozen blocks of, of fish in these ships that you could kind of slice it off, bread it and cook it. Uh, poutine, of course, you would expect ah, that to be there. I was waiting for poutine. <laughs> uh, the Halifax Donair, which is a yeah. very specific kind of uh, Donair. Uh, of course, Tim Hortons Donuts. Um, California Roll Sushi. So, really? Uh, is kind of like an accessible way yeah. to eat sushi here in Canada and it was really like there a bunch of things on this list were very uh connected to the immigrant experience in Canada uh so that was one uh pierogies was one Schwartz's smoked meat is one um and how the food ways changed in the country because of uh these different immigrants coming in and then the other was uh ginger beef which was kind of like a reaction to another uh Chinese food mm. type of um 
of dish. Uh, and this was created by Chef George Wong, who was the chef at Calgary's Silver Inn in the 1970s. And he created ginger beef recipe that was kind of a very uh, popular Chinese food thing. And then there was a whole tangent about, I didn't go into this tangent, but about Chinese food restaurants in, in Canada in general. And this, that uh, at that time, there was a Chinese food restaurant in pretty much every single community uh, in Canada. There aren't so many anymore. You don't see them as often maybe, but uh, anyway. McCain Super Fries. Yeah. Um, Man, I wonder where that kid is now. I know. Like, oh, I, yeah, I did talk about that commercial. Such a good, <laughs> such a good commercial. Uh, Yukon Gold Potatoes uh, are very Canadian. Uh, Jamaican Patties. Uh, there was an interesting thing about Jamaican patties in that in 1985, federal inspectors were raiding Jamaican uh, restaurants in Toronto to crack down on the sale of false beef patties. Because apparently, according to the Meat Inspection Act, a beef patty was like a hamburger. <laughs> and so you couldn't sell a patty like, you know what Jamaican patties look like. It's like yeah. a fold over, like a turnover with meat yeah. ground up inside. You couldn't sell that and call it um, a beef patty. That's what it was being called. So they are now call that Jamaican patty specifically. Yeah. So it's a very specific thing. So I guess it's, it's the name of it that's yes. Canadian, not necessarily the recipe. Right. Or... Yeah, yeah. Cool. Because of this crackdown on what beef patty is defined on by the <laughs> uh, the Meat Inspection Act. It's so funny what we choose to care it's about. very strange. <laughs> the color, color of margarine. margarine. <laughs> name of beef patty. Uh, Mick Lobster. Is a Canadian thing. Uh, <laughs> it came from Canada. It came from, it started in Amherst, in the McDonald's in Amherst, Nova Scotia. Um, and it's very unique to the Maritimes. If you've been out to the eastern part of Canada, you might have had it just as a, a novelty <laughs> for sure. And then there was some stuff about uh, uh, wild rice and um, indigenous food like pemmican and those kinds of things. Mm. And it did talk about that uh, as well. It didn't actually say what Canada's national food was. It just went through this whole list. And then I got to the end of this and I was like, what the heck am I doing here? I am not re researching <laughs> restaurants or taverns at all. I need to get off of this. <laughs> so I started again. And then the, the rest of my research was really in this one document that I found called um, the games people played uh, it was called taverns and amusements and colonial social relations which was written in 2010 by julia roberts uh, for ontario history magazine uh, and it really talks about the geography of power within tavern spaces uh, and it's really about how class and gender and race really kind of manifested itself within this space the tavern space uh, in a specific way in communities. So I thought it was really interesting. And it actually, uh, what this article says is what you've all said about restaurants and taverns already, uh, that uh, they were places where people went to hang out and to get to know their community. And so Adrian, when you were talking about how we feel with COVID, imagine if you are a person that's living in, uh, you know, a newer community in the 19th century and you live out in the bush, like Susanna Moody, they reference her a bunch of times times um, in, uh, in the, the, uh, the article and uh, talking about how taverns served that purpose of taking away your isolation and giving you a place where you can uh, socialize in a specific way, essentially. But this particular article starts out that I think they're going to be talking about how people use taverns for play, like games and songs and those kinds of things, essentially. So it talks about, uh, it starts out in kind of like the 1812-ish period, talking about a tavern 
Tavern uh, in British-occupied Detroit, and how the tavern also helped to um, define colonial power in a community. So it wasn't just about mm. place for socializing, but the way that people, the hierarchy of how people interacted in the tavern also could help to entrench this kind of colonial power uh, in a community. But it also talked about some of bit about the play side of things, which included telling stories and magician sleight of hand kind of thing where, you know, you sometimes you go into a bar and someone will be like, hey, you want to see a magic trick? And so this is like, apparently this was a, a thing. And uh, John Beverly Robinson, who, uh, if you're a regular listener of our podcast, you may have heard in our podcast about the family compact a few seasons ago, comes into play in this article. So I thought that was awesome that eventually something else we've researched comes back to haunt us. So John Beverly Robinson, who is the Chief Justice of Upper Canada, uh, once wrote about the kind of sport that people in the barroom of an inn constantly indulge in, which is this uh, idea of kind of these weird sleight of hand kind of, you know, it's almost like the cup game where you got to try to find the ball that's under which cup. It's like that kind of thing was apparently fairly typical of a, a, a tavern or bar in that uh, period. And then the article goes on a bit about the size of taverns and uh, um, hotels and what those were. Sometimes they could be as small as a one or two room log home. Uh, but also they could be this giant, you know, a, a full-on uh, hotel that had places where people could stay uh, in in urban centers, which probably was similar to uh, Paul Shipman's place versus the Battleground Hotel, yeah. which was just a small place that literally might have had one room for someone to stay in, and mm -hmm. it was mostly just the, the, boy, the, the bar room kind of thing. Uh, and they served a very distinct purpose in colonial society uh, because there was nowhere else to go. <laughs> essentially in a lot of communities. Uh, but it did say that all minor houses provided far more possibilities for public entertainment, solid and sometimes excellent vernacular fare, so local food, a good array of liquor in the bar, and rooms that enabled choices. Every good minor house balanced rooms allowing for relative privacy, so a parlor or upstairs sitting rooms, with those that encouraged full public engagement, uh, which included the bar room especially. Uh, which I think is really interesting because a lot of places are still like this that give you like that spot where everyone can hang out at the bar, but also someplace that's a little more private. So I think it's like all comes back around you know, you even thinking about Paul Shipman's place is probably similar to this. The Battleground Hotel was kind of like this. It was really great that it kind of brought a whole bunch of stories all back together for me. Uh, it said that taverns crucially supported the economy. Uh, and I hadn't really put this all together, but I thought this was great. It not only supported the economy as in helping a person who owned a tavern to keep to have a living, but it supported the transportation network because if you didn't have someplace to stop on your transportation network, uh, it was pretty hard to have a transportation network. It's kind of like the on routes when you're on the 401 now. Yeah. Like Honestly, if you need to travel anywhere across Ontario, if you don't have those on routes to be able to stop and use the bathroom, uh, really taverns kind of served that same purpose in early uh, Ontario. Um, it helped to support political life because if you were electioneering, this was the place that you tried to catch those people uh, and get their votes and maybe buy their votes a bit with some, some uh, 
liquor. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also it supported a public association, which we've already talked about, to help people not feel so isolated. Uh, but going into the, finally she gets to the, what what kind of games are, are going on in these taverns, like uh, social activities. So song singing was very popular, which apparently encouraged shared conviviality <laughs> which i thought sounded awesome <laughs> that's a great word <laughs> that's definitely something that we're missing I, yes. for sure you cannot you don't get well, you can i guess kind of but having shared conviviality over zoom is not as fun as do as having shared conviviality in it's true, but I also don't think in Ontario, even before COVID, that song singing was super popular in bars. Uh, dancing was also very popular, of course, um, and uh, frequently they would have a fiddler who would come and play. Uh, interestingly enough, I think I do get into this in a little bit, but maybe I don't. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of times the entertainment at many of these public houses was a person of color. Um, which I thought was really interesting. So it did talk a little bit about taverns and uh, bar rooms being social levelers for a, that a lot of people could get together and socialize together, but it was almost like an artificial social leveler. Uh, so it seemed like everybody was there, uh, gender, race, uh, and you know whatever age but in actual fact it was artificial it wasn't really like women and men were in actuality for everybody women and men really weren't hanging out together on an equal footing and uh, people of color and white uh, settlers were not kind of hanging out on equal footing and indigenous people weren't either even though she talks about some stories from diaries and things like that of um, people of uh, indigenous people hanging out in some of these uh, taverns but they weren't considered equal in the end uh, to the person that was writing this diary, which was, was a, a settler kind of person. So anyway, music and dancing created good company, comradeship and good fellowship, which is no shock there. I think that's still the same. But uh, there is dancing with a fiddler and then there's the subscription ball. So here we go about class. So it's also you know, you'd think it would be like a classless kind of thing where everyone could go hang out in the bar. Well, in actual fact, upper class people didn't want to hang out in the bar with everybody else necessarily. So they would have subscription balls where you had to pay a subscription to be a part of this. It was in its own private room. Um, and uh, really, there's a quote in here that said it reeks of privilege. Gentlemen and ladies preferred exclusive clubs as allies to define a separate gentrified identity as spaces devoid of their public character. So <laughs> they basically didn't want to have their, their ball in the bar either. It had to be in a place that uh, kind of looked like if you had a ballroom in your house, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, not surprisingly, they talked about cards and betting games, which also included um, dominoes, backgammon, uh, different card games. Uh, most popular in the 19th century was whist, um, but uh, just gambling in general. Talked a little bit about uh, dog fighting and cockfighting, as well as potentially bear baiting, although they did say that there doesn't seem to be any evidence that in Ontario there was much bear baiting going on. <laughs> <laughs> so thank God for that. But we still did yeah. have dog fighting and cock fighting in bars, um, which apparently was legal till 1835. Wow. Um, 
And then, of course, like everything, uh, sports were things that were enjoyed in uh, taverns and bars, both as participants and as fans. Uh, and to me, this felt just like the modern day and that uh, many sporting clubs used the tavern or the, uh, the bar room uh, as their clubhouse. So they would go there uh, after a game to enjoy either the sting of their loss or the <laughs> celebration <laughs> of their win. Uh, but it might also be the place where they would have their meetings. So the, the board of the club would have their meetings in one of these places. I'm sure that Paul Shipman's tavern would have been used for these kinds of activities. And same with William Hamilton Merritt's uh, uh, mansion house would likely be a, a similar kind of thing. Um, this particular article spoke about cricket, which is interesting, um, but uh, but that would be fairly common, I think, across most sports. And it uh, included uh, enjoying horse racing as well. So uh, obviously not horse racing um, in the bar or on the bars kind of property, but, you know, the either before and after part of it and the gambling part of it would all be kind of centered on this whole thing. Uh, and then it went into a little bit, I didn't have much time left because the article was really long. I didn't finish it in the uh, the entire hour. I did eventually finish it, but not in the hour. So I'm not going to go past what I finished. Uh, but I did uh, talk about um, things like carnivals and circuses and, and oddities that were shown off in these places, in these public cool. houses. So specifically talked about uh, a couple of uh, uh, two men that were conjoined twins um, almost being like a, a, an oddity that attracted people to come and hang out in the bar and then hear their story and that kind of thing. And that that's kind of like the circus carnival atmosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, and then went a little bit into minstrel shows um, and how popular those were for a certain period of time in Ontario. Um, and then there was a little bit of a, and I'm almost at the end, uh, there was a whole section about fighting and honor and men Ooh. using this kind of like as the place to gather if they were gonna like have a legit fight amongst <laughs> themselves, right? So sometimes they actually had fights in the bar. Sometimes it was like uh, that they're talking about like, what is this fight gonna look like? Apparently the act of removing your jacket meant you were gonna fight. Ooh. So if you like took off your jacket, that meant you were ready. Let's go, we're gonna fight. Um, Better hope there's good air <laughs> circulation in these pubs. Thing. <laughs> just, and God forbid. I'm just warm. <laughs> <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't take off your jacket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it was really, there was this actual kind of uh, understanding about the level of violence that was okay among <laughs> <laughs> among people at this point, which is kind of oh, kind of interesting. Uh, the article says that this suggests an understanding of the place of violence within masculinity in the colonial era, um, and needs to acknowledge the intense value men placed on their social networks and the standing of their good names, which I've got in quotes, their good names uh, within those social standings. So. The, the tavern was the place where you would go to kind of like set your your set your account straight on who you were as a person in this community. And if someone was going to, um, you know, 
start to sully your good name, you might use that as the place to call them out uh, for in whatever way that was, whether that was an actual physical fist fight or some other kind of uh, way to do that. Uh, and so adding to this idea of masculinity and the kind of um, masculinity and social standing is where she actually says, included in all the things happening in a bar, was spitting promiscuously, which I think is the grossest sounding term. <laughs> but I mean, it's not surprising that, you know, you've seen, I, I don't know if you've seen, but I've seen lots of kind of prints and things where spittoons are quite prominent in bar rooms. <laughs> and so, you know, you expect that spitting is happening, but to put it out there as spitting promiscuously just made it just too real for me. And <laughs> yeah. I can't even get over the idea of gathering in a place, let alone people spitting in the place that we're I... gathered. Like that's <laughs> So yeah. That's beyond my imagination it's right like the now. The whole idea of blowing out candles on a birthday cake that you then serve to a bunch of people in in our in our like never COVID again. and post COVID world, it's like that's never yeah. gonna happen again. That's very <laughs> true. <laughs> Yikes. So that was my research. I did finish the article. It was quite interesting, and we'll we'll add it as a link to the um, uh, to the podcast notes uh, because it does talk a bit more about race and identity um, in bars in Ontario. But uh, I'm not going to go into that because that was past my uh, my one hour. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty incredible. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I guess it makes sense that there might be some, you know, if the if the pub is a place where the community gathers, that some of the same issues that the community is dealing with are just microcosmed into the pub so that's at least that's how it is on coronation street for <laughs> sure <very> true. <laughs> for sure if you watch coronation street all the problems outside of the pub eventually end up in the pub but everything we've talked about we talked about uh pompeii and graffiti and you know people hanging out in uh, in bars for for that reason like to, to socialize there we've talked about um, sushi restaurants and all of those things all tie right back together to you know the whole purpose of taverns and restaurants in ontario in the 19th century as well it's like it hasn't changed for hundreds of years <laughs> thousands of years i guess uh, if you include Pompeii in there. Uh, so it's kind of <laughs> cool to, to hear what you guys had to say because it really tied in what I had read as well from That's a totally so cool. different time period. So it's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, that was really fun. Hopefully everybody enjoyed listening to that. <laughs> Muppets, uh, sushi, and uh, spitting, what is it? Spitting promiscuously? <laughs> wow, it's wild. Thank you so much, Christine, for joining us. Thank you. Uh, it was really good to see you. Thanks very much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole for some munchy historical treats. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, so you don't miss any of our yummy historical adventures. We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, connect with us at www.facebook.com slash St. Catherine's Museum or at STC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next episode of One Hour in the Past. 
One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie, and brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and the City of St. Catharines. 